Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles with me to uh, Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, and we're looking at verses 37 through 50 today. These verses, they, do, they tell us uh, four stories that may at first seem unrelated, but they are in fact connected because in each of these stories, Luke tells us about a different failure of the disciples. Now, I, Luke isn't telling us these stories to beat up on the twelve but to show us that these are mistakes that every disciple of Christ can fall into. And while he does that, he also wants to show us afresh the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ for uh, fumbling, bumbling, and uh, sometimes failing disciples. Uh, So before we read God's word uh, together this morning, let's pray and ask for his blessing. Please join me. Heavenly Father, may the word of Christ by the Holy Spirit sink into our ears today, and may it transform our minds and change our hearts. We ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 37. Uh, Let's hear the voice of the Lord in his word. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out. But they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you All is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. 
I think I've shared this with you before, if my memory is correct, that uh, public speaking was uh, probably my least favorite class in high school. And uh, the first speech I had to give was a two-minute presentation, anything I wanted to talk about. So uh, being young and arrogant, I thought, ah, two minutes, okay. I can, uh, I'll just wing it. I'll pick something beforehand and get up and talk for two minutes. And I'm not the kind of person that volunteers to go first, so I sat and let the whole class give their speeches before me, and I was maybe last or next to last. And I stood up to give my two-minute speech, and when I stood up, my mind went blank. <laughs> and uh, I could not recall anything. So I, uh, I basically stammered on for about... 30, 45 seconds, and, uh, and sat down, and it was a total failure <laughs> on my part. And you know, uh, failures in our lives, they can, be, they can be wasted, or they can be learned from. And that's what Jesus wants for his disciples. He, he wants them to learn from their mistakes and to grow from, from them and their experience in their lives. And not only that, as we look at this passage, not only does Jesus want us to see the mistakes of the disciples and learn from them, but he, but he also wants us to see that he is utterly committed to saving us. So that's what I want us to see this morning as we look at these uh, four stories and the failure of the disciples so that we might learn from them and grow ourselves. And when we fall in these areas in our lives, to know for certain that we follow a Savior who is absolutely, utterly committed to saving us. So in this passage, as we read over those stories, Luke tells us about the disciples failing in four areas. And Verses 37 through 43, we read about a failure in faith. In verses 44 and 45, a failure in understanding. In verses 46 through 48, a failure in humility. And then verses 49 and 50, a failure in acceptance. And that's what I want us to unpack today. And so in the first place, in this first story, we see a failure of faith. Uh, the disciples' first mistake was to not trust the Lord to do the work that only he can do. Or if we, we could put it another way and say that the disciples tried to serve the Lord in their own strength, and they failed. Now, this story, it picks up a day after Jesus uh, and his, his glory was revealed to Peter uh, uh, James and John on the mountain, when, when they saw the, the divine glory bursting forth from the person of Jesus Christ. And as they come back down the mountain and Jesus enters back into the trenches of ministry, he is, he's met by a sea of people. And, and Luke focuses our attention on a single man, a father with a desperate, desperate need. And so he's, he's, he's passionately pleading with Jesus, Jesus, look upon my son, for he is my only child. It looks like 
in terms of physical symptoms that this boy was suffering from some kind of seizures, but very quickly we find out that he wasn't simply ill, but rather he was, he was being assaulted. The father goes on to describe that a spirit seizes him and his boy cries out and it, and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, leaving, leaving the boy just broken and shattered on the ground. And it's unrelenting, the father says. He never stops tormenting him. And so behind these physical symptoms are, are spiritual powers. And let me just say in passing, I think this should be a reminder to us, dear ones, that the evil one is never, ever seeking your good. He wants to destroy you. Mark's account tells us that this spirit would throw the boy into water and in fire in order to try to kill him. Why? Ultimately because this demon did not want this boy brought to Jesus. And my friends, that's actually true in all of our lives. Yes, the circumstances in this story are extraordinary. And while the evil one has many, many different tactics he will use and employ in our lives, he has one great goal in view, and that is to keep you from coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether it's an unhealthy relationship, the temptations of this world, whatever, on and on and on, this is his goal to keep you from Christ. But it's, we also see in this story, this isn't the first time the father has sought help. He's already taken the boy to Jesus' disciples, the twelve, perhaps nine of them, while Jesus was up on the mountain. We don't, we don't know, but despite their efforts, they could not drive out the demon. They, they failed. And I think to understand what's going on here, you have to go back to the beginning of Luke chapter 9 and at least glance at verse 1, because at the very beginning of this chapter, Luke told us that Jesus gave to his disciples power and authority to cast out demons and to cure diseases. So this evil spirit is not like, not like Belrog in Lord of the Rings, where normal weapons just won't work and only Jesus is able to deal with him. That's not the point in this story. The disciples did not fail from, from lack of effort or because an, this particular evil spirit was just too much for them. The point of this story is that they failed from a lack of faith. They, they failed to trust the Lord to do the work that only he can do. Mark explains this account a little bit more and later the disciples asked Jesus, why couldn't we drive out this evil spirit? And Jesus' answer was, it needed to be driven out with prayer. And apparently the disciples thought that they could, they could handle this in their own strength and they didn't seek the Lord in prayer, seek, seek the Lord to work through them in the power and authority that had been given to them from Christ. I think that a lack of faith is the issue here is also made clear and Jesus' reaction to all of this in verse 41. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Now, who's Jesus talking to when he says that? I don't think it is, first of all, directed at the crowd. They may be included in this, but I don't think that's the direct audience here. And it's certainly not the Father who has 
brought his son to Jesus in faith. This is the same man who, again, in Mark's account, pleaded with Jesus to help him believe more. I think Jesus is actually speaking here, first of all, to his own disciples. And he's actually using language from the Old Testament when he He's alluding to the time of the Exodus and he's saying these guys are just like the generation brought out from Egypt failing to trust in the Lord. And we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that failure here in just a minute. But first of all, notice what Jesus does in this situation while he's frustrated with his own disciples. He's still a savior full of compassion and he tells this father, bring bring your child to me. Of course, the evil spirit resisted and threw the child on the ground and convulsed him again. But Jesus rebuked the spirit, healed the boy. And don't you love that phrase? We've seen it once already in Luke's gospel. He gave the boy back to his father. Some of these miracles, they they are meant to be illustrations of of what Jesus does in the gospel. He, He deals with evil. He heals his people and he restores things to what they ought to be. But let's go go back, though, to this failure of faith because this is the point of the story in Luke's gospel. Christ had given them the resources for ministry, but they failed to carry out that ministry in, in faith. They failed to rely upon the Lord again to do the work that only he can do, and they tried to do it in their very own strength. So if you just think about this, what's, what's the lesson here? What is this meant to be teaching us? What does it mean for you and, and me? I think there's a principle here that we need to grasp, and it's simply this. If we broaden it out, there is nothing that you and I can do in the Christian life in our own strength. Like that's the principle here. There is nothing you and I can do in the Christian life by our own strength. As disciples, we, we're, we're not independent. We are dependent on the grace and the strength that God gives his people. And so when we seek to serve the Lord, it must be a service done in faith. This, this principle applies in all sorts of areas of the Christian life, doesn't it? It, it certainly applies in the area of, of, of our spiritual growth. We are called to pursue growth in the Christian life, to to pursue Christ-likeness, to put off sin and to put on love and, and good works. But my friends, if you try to do that in your own strength, you will fail. And so when we seek to live for the Lord, we live by the strength that he provides and we live by faith. We could also apply this to the ministry of this church, this principle. We could could try to do everything God has called us to do as a church, but if we strive to do it in our own strength, brothers and sisters, Trinity Presbyterian Church will fail. And I actually, I, I think this is part of the weakness of ministry in the church today is that many have begun to view ministry more like a business rather than a spiritual labor. When in fact the ministry of the local church is the Lord Jesus Christ in his risen state working out his purposes and his plan through his people 
who serve him by faith. And so let's make sure we, we, we get this as disciples. We cannot, we cannot follow Christ. We cannot obey Christ. We cannot serve Christ in our own strength. We must rely on him. What does Jesus say? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, as we go to the, the second story in, in verses 44 through 45, we we see another failure, a failure of understanding. I think what's going on here is the disciples failed to understand because they were letting their own assumptions about Jesus get in the way of actually listening to Jesus. Let me try to explain that from the story here. But first, look at it with me. Everyone was, was astonished at the majesty of God after Jesus drove out this evil spirit. And then while everyone is marveling at this, Jesus takes it as an opportunity to teach his disciples. It just seems kind of out of place, doesn't it? While everyone's marveling, what does Jesus say, say to them? He, he said to them, let these words sink into your ears. In other words, listen up. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And I think what's going on here is Jesus knew that his disciples still had wrong assumptions about his mission. They still had warped thinking about what he was sent by the Heavenly Father to do. And, and so he focuses their attention once again on his suffering and death in Jerusalem, lest they think he is a mere wonder worker who one day is going to be like a military messiah and, and drive out the Roman occupation and restore Israel to her for, former earthly glory, Jesus reminds them here of the fundamental reason he has come. He has come to die. He has come to suffer and be hanged upon the cross and three days later rise again from the dead. So he says, get this in your ears. I'm going to be handed over into the hands of men. As you see here, this, it just didn't click with the disciples. It didn't make any sense to them. They, they couldn't put together how this Jesus who was able to cure diseases and raise the dead, uh, this Jesus who was able to drive out all kinds of evil spirits, this Jesus who with a word was able to calm the storms and, and, uh, and stop the winds, this Jesus, who had this incredible power, they couldn't understand how he was also a Jesus who was going to die in utter humiliation in, in the city of Jerusalem. But, but Luke actually, he intensifies their failure to understand, doesn't he? It wasn't just that they did not understand. Luke says they could not understand. Look at verse 45. They did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So what, what's that verse about? A lot of people, perhaps the majority of people, understand this verse to be saying, basically, these disciples were just not in the place where they were ready to understand and take in the full reality or the full scope of what Jesus had come to do. And so the Holy Spirit concealed this from them. 
kept them from understanding it. But I, I have trouble understanding the verse that way in, in light of everything we've read so far in Luke. Back in Luke chapter 8, Jesus just told his disciples that the secrets of the kingdom have been given to them. And this is now the, the second time that Jesus has begun to talk to his disciples about his, his cross so that they might begin to understand the heart of his messianic mission. So if that's not the way to understand the verse, what, what is this verse saying? I, I think it's this. I think this verse is telling us that their wrong assumptions about Jesus and his mission actually closed their minds to the reality of what Jesus was saying to them. They, they couldn't wrap their minds around a suffering Savior because it didn't meet their expectations. You know, they had their own ideas and their own plans of what Jesus should and, and would do. And therefore, what Jesus would do at this point was, it was hidden from their understanding. Do you, remember, do you remember Peter's reaction in Matthew's account of, of uh, when, the, when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ? Right confession. Peter's right on there. And then Jesus immediately went on to do what? He went on to talk about the suffering of the Messiah, that he would suffer, die, and three days later rise again. And Peter took Jesus aside and, and, and tried to rebuke him. No, 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 Jesus. That, that is not what the Messiah came to do. You're wrong about that. Far be it from you, O Lord, to suffer in such a way. He couldn't grasp it. He couldn't understand that this is what God's Messiah had come to do and accomplish for his people. So think about this with me. If the mistake is a failure to really understand Jesus because our assumptions are getting in the way of actually listening to Jesus, what's the lesson here for us? What's the correction? What's, what's the remedy and I think one of the things Calvin used to love to say was that we need to surrender our minds and our wills to Christ. And that's the lesson here, dear friends. We, we need to utterly surrender ourselves to the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because if we only hear the parts we want to hear, or we take what Jesus says and we filter it through our own desires without submitting our desires to Christ, then we are not actually going to understand the teaching of our Lord. We are not actually going to hear him as we ought. And so this is my encouragement for us as we, as we study God's word throughout the week, as we come Lord's Day after Lord's Day to sit under God's word, what should we do? We need to come to the Lord Jesus Christ with open ears a submissive mind, and a humble heart. This passage, I think, is Jesus is teaching his disciples, I'm, I'm the teacher, you're the disciples. And so as disciples, once again, we are not independent. We are dependent, even when it comes to our thinking. And so we submit our minds and our wills to Christ so that our thinking and our lives are shaped by him and his word. Now, as we come to the third story, we, we look at uh, verses 46 through 48. And here we see a failure 
in humility. I read this and I, and I almost laugh. We, we read that an argument broke out among the disciples about who was the greatest. I read that and I think, what, what is, what's wrong with you guys? You, you're following Jesus who came not to be served but to serve and lay down his life. You're, you're following the Jesus who would later take off his outer garments and get down and wash the dirty feet of his disciples. And you guys are arguing about who is greatest in his kingdom. It seems so absurd, but you see Luke knows that pride, it plagues every human heart. And if these disciples, who would later go on to be the apostles and the foundation of the New Testament church, were prone to it, dear friends, so, so are we. We don't know how this argument went among the disciples. We can imagine some things. Maybe uh, Peter, James, and John were saying, yeah, well, we're more important than you guys. Some others may have said, well, I'm, I'm closer to Jesus than you, or I serve him more than you do. We, we don't know, but at the end of the day, it all boiled down to this. It was just an argument of self-promotion. And that's what it boiled down to. It was all about exalting self. And we see this kind of thing all around us in our world, don't we? We see it in sports. And you know, if I'm going to use a sports illustration, it's going to be a soccer illustration. So just forgive me for that again. Uh, you know, in soccer, uh, when somebody scores, it's a cause for celebration. And you'll say yes, because it never happens. But, uh, you know, some players actually have their own signature celebration. Uh, so perhaps you've seen some of these celebrations. Uh, some, some players will actually, after scoring a goal, go to the crowd, point their back to the crowd, and point to their own names on the back of their jerseys. Have you seen this? They point at themselves. One, one of the most well-known soccer players playing today, one of the best players in the world, not just today, but probably in the history of the sport, his, his celebration is to show his back to the crowd after scoring a goal, and you think, it's, it's just somebody saying, look at me, look at, look at how great I am. Am I not the greatest in the world? Now, it's easy to kind of shake your head at that, and maybe stick up your, your nose at that kind of thing, until you come to a passage like this, and realize that Jesus' own disciples are plagued with self-promoting pride. You know, we may not go around and verbally say, look, look at me, look at how great I am, look at the things I do and service to the kingdom. We're, we're more sophisticated than that. <laughs> but we have our own ways of self-promotion. And, and my friends, that is because pride is a problem for every sinful heart. We are by nature self-promoters, self-seeking. And Jesus knows it. Jesus knows the reasoning of his disciples. And, and my friends, he knows our hearts. So take a look at what he says in verses 47 and 48. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child and my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now to understand what Jesus is saying here, you've, you've got to understand how children were viewed at that time. 
Rabbis typically ignore children altogether. So just, just the fact of Jesus taking this child and putting him in the place of prominence next to him was extraordinary. But in the, in the Roman, broader Roman culture, children were pretty much considered insignificant until they were willing to, or are able to contribute something. A sad fact of history, fathers could legally sell their own daughters under the age of 12 into slavery. Uh, one commentator I read said this, uh, until children could contribute to the labor force, he's talking about in the Roman Empire, they simply had not arrived. They were quite literally the least among you. And so Jesus, you see what he does here? And instead of just speaking the truth, he, he illustrates the truth to his disciples. And he interrupts this argument by taking a child and putting him beside him and saying to his disciples, the way you treat the least in the world will indicate the kind of relationship you have with me and my heavenly father. If you're not concerned about them and you're more concerned about status than service, then you have a problem because you stand in contradiction with the values of my kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying here. You see, true greatness in, in the eyes of God, Jesus is saying, is when you take the lowest place, seeking, seeking no recognition for your, your, yourself, but showing love and concern for the weak and the helpless. And of course, that means Jesus is the greatest of all, is he not? Because this is precisely, this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Putting himself in the lowest place for the weak and the helpless. And if we follow him, dear brothers and sisters, he calls us to, to clothe ourselves, not in self-exalting pride, but in, but in humility. And one way we do that is by, by loving people who ordinarily get overlooked. It means, it means loving and serving children. Loving, loving the widow and the orphan. Visiting the sick and shut-in. Serving the disabled. Showing hospitality to, to others. Loving and serving those who have nothing to give back to you. That's the kind of humility that Jesus says is truly great. And that's what he defines true greatness actually is. And he's saying, these are the marks of my disciples, not self-exalting promotion. Now, I, I said this is meant to be an encouragement. And uh, maybe for, for now, this is, this is an act of faith on your part to believe that's the case. But let's look at the fourth failure first before we get to that in verses 49 and 50. It's a failure of, we could say a few words here. I'm using the word acceptance, tolerance. Just look at it with me. In verse 49, John tells Jesus that the disciples <coughs> saw a man casting out demons in Christ's name. And they said, hey buddy, you better stop it. After all, Jesus, he doesn't follow with us. So we, we rebuked him and told him he needs to quit. Now, what's, what's going on here? What's wrong? What's the mistake? I think it's this. It's a spirit of 
um, it's a party spirit. It's a, it's a spirit of exclusivism. Think about it with me here. It's not that this man was not a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that he was not a true believer. It's not that he was going around teaching, uh, teaching heresy and leading people astray. It's simply that he did not follow with that group of disciples. You see the language that John uses. We tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. He didn't belong to their group. And so John wanted to see him silenced. What does Jesus do? I can just kind of picture Jesus hanging his head. Guys, guys, guys. Don't, Don't stop him. Because he who is not against you is for you, Jesus says. Now before we think about what what that means for us as a church, let's make sure we don't misunderstand our Lord here. This is one of those passages that is often abused and twisted to to say all kinds of things that Jesus isn't even dealing with here. Um, Jesus is not suggesting that doctrine doesn't matter. All right, let's just let's put that out there, make that clear. If someone is teaching false doctrine, leading people astray from the truth, we, we do not encourage that, we don't associate with that, we do not condone that. But that's not the issue here, is it? The disciples wanted this man to stop simply because he didn't follow with them. And that is the issue Jesus is dealing with. He is, he is confronting our tendency to limit the extent of his kingdom with our own false limitations. That's what Jesus is doing here. So what does that mean? Let's think about this. What does it mean for us as, as a church? You know, as, a, as a reformed church, we, we, we take the Bible seriously. We believe it is truth that fuels greater love and service to God. We, we believe that the Bible is God's authoritative word for us and what we are to believe and how we are to live. And so we take the Bible seriously and that is a good and a healthy thing. But, but here's what I want to say. We must never ever allow that to cultivate a spirit of pride and exclusivism where we begin to look down on other Christians just because they are not like us or they disagree with us on issues that are not fundamental to the faith. Instead of an exclusive spirit here, let's think about the, conversely what we ought to do. I mean, I think these disciples should have looked at this man and encouraged him. Hey, we're, we're thankful for you. We're grateful for what the Lord is doing. Isn't there an irony in this passage? Because just a moment ago, the disciples failed to drive out a demon. And now here is this man in the name of Christ driving out evil spirits. Is there an element of jealousy here? Perhaps, perhaps. But my friends, as we apply this to ourselves, we should be grateful when we see other gospel-proclaiming churches doing ministry, even if their doctrinal distinctives differ from from our own. We want want to praise God that that Christ's kingdom is advancing, that the gospel is going forth and people are being saved, and that the kingdom of our Lord Jesus is bigger than Trinity PCA. It's bigger than the PCA, and it's bigger than, than the Reformed community. And so these four stories, they, they show us that disciples, they are, uh, they're far from perfect. 
Sometimes we fail to believe as, as, as we ought. Sometimes we, we fail to understand because our own wrongful assumptions are getting in the way of listening to Jesus. Sometimes we're prideful instead of humble. And sometimes, sometimes we engage in friendly fire, wounding brothers and sisters in Christ when we should be taking the fight to Satan. And the truth is that it's not just that maybe we failed in one of these areas, but we can probably look at each of these failures and see places in our lives where we have fallen into these mistakes. We try to do things in our own strength instead of, instead of by faith. We don't come to the Lord's word with a, with a humble heart and open ears and submissive mind all of the time. Sometimes we're just plain prideful and self-promoting rather than serving the least of these. And sometimes we have a critical spirit, don't we? And as I think about, as I think about all these mistakes that the disciples make, it makes me wonder why, why on earth did Jesus call these men to be his disciples? And more than that, why, why does Jesus call us to be his disciples when even even after following him for years and years times we still fall into these same old mistakes i think here is where we see the encouraging truth in 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 these stories because it's not only that jesus wants them to learn from their mistakes and grow in grace but we're meant to see here that jesus has grace for disciples who just frankly can't get out of their own way sometimes (laughs) And the Gospel of Luke proves that. And here we are in Luke chapter 9, and I said at the beginning of the sermon, there could have been a fifth failure, because there's a fifth one in the next story. But here we are in, in Luke chapter 9, and 14 chapters later, Jesus Christ is hanging on a cross for these men. He was absolutely committed to sealing and accomplishing their salvation, knowing full well the kind of men they were, the kind of sinners they were, and the mistakes that they would make. I think there's something glorious about the way Luke puts these stories together. Here are four stories exposing clearly the failure of Christ's disciples. And yet the very next thing we read in verse 51 is that Jesus set his face To go to Jerusalem. And you know what that means brothers and sisters. He set his face to the cross. He set his face to go and suffer and die and rise again. Because it was by his suffering and by his death and by his resurrection. That he would save these fumbling, stumbling and sometimes failing disciples. He set his face to go to Calvary. My friends, for such as these and such as you and me, because he is absolutely, utterly committed to seeing his people saved. As we just look over these stories, I'm not trying to falsely accuse anyone, but I, I confidently say this. Chances are we can look at each of these stories and see places in our lives where we have failed here. We failed. Now, let's not, let's not allow these failures to go to waste. But let's remember what Jesus 
intends to do here. He intends his disciples to learn from their failures, to grow in grace, and to once again see afresh the grace that Christ has for his disciples. My friends, he set his face like a flint to Jerusalem for you. To, to ensure that you would be saved. Knowing full well the sinner that you are and the sinner that you will continue to be until he calls you home. And he was willing to go to the cross for the likes of you and me.